Welcome, friends, to another edition of Economic Update. I'm your host, Richard Wolf. In today's show, we're going to be talking about the GOP turning against forgiveness of student loans, the buying up of American homes by investment companies, converting homeowners into renters, the really problematic condition of our economy, and a remarkable unity of the left in French politics. And then in the second half of the show, I've invited a specialist in the history of the left and of Marxism and socialism, who's going to talk about how the left has handled wars, both in the past and right up to the present Ukraine and all of that, so that we learn more about how the left has debated and divided around that question. So let me jump right in. On the 5th of May, and before and after as well, the leader of the Republican Party, Senator McConnell, at least a leader in the Senate, uh, has been slaving away doing his usual political dirty work, this time trying to destroy, to stop, to block the forgiveness of student loans. And I wanted to explain what this is about, since Mr. McConnell clearly either doesn't know or isn't sharing that reality. We are a more indebted economy than we have ever been. The American people are laboring under burdens of debt we've never seen before in American history. Mortgage debt, automobile car payment debt, credit card debt, and student debt. The four debt horsemen of the apocalypse in this country. And one of the great anxieties of the rich, led by the banks, is that this mountain of debt will be renounced by the debtors, because in the history of the world, that has happened many times. And the fear here is palpable. And the problem is that students who have often been the advance guard, the vanguard of social change, demanding the changes that then the rest of the citizens catch on to, the students are demanding forgiveness, at least of their debt. And that opens the box of the possibility of an anti-debt movement that has the capitalists of this country shaking in their high-priced boots. And Mr. McConnell is there to do the job. And he begins as follows. He calls debt forgiveness, and I did not make this up, friends, socialism. Now, besides indicating that he doesn't know much about socialism, and what would we expect from a Republican senator, uh, socialists have ad advocated all kinds of things, but forgiveness of debt, which is in there somewhere, has never been the major thrust of a socialist platform. But of course, Senator McConnell doesn't know or care. He uses that as a swear word to kind of knock it out. But you might be interested that I did a little research, and my research took me to the Old Testament in the Bible, particularly to Leviticus 25, for those of you who know about these things, where the Bible says that God is pleased if every seven years, guess what? We forgive debts. It's a way of restoring the community, preventing it from splitting between the debtor and the creditor. But Mr. McConnell, who I'm sure is a good Christian, didn't know much about it or didn't care. 
What else did he do? Well, he said, we really don't need to help the students. It isn't fair. What does he mean? He knows that they're going to do everything in their power to not forgive the people with mortgage debt, the people with credit card debt, the people with automobile payment debt. You know, we have these debts because we don't have enough wages and salaries to buy things outright, which we would have preferred to do. Debt is the last resort of people who don't want to give up on the things that are important in life, even though they're not paid properly. Guess by whom? By the capitalists who employ them. And so Mr. McConnell wants to turn those who will not be forgiven against those who might be if they mobilize. Of course, the alternative is to say to everybody, the students are simply the first ones. Line up with them. Line up behind them. Get for yourself as a debtor what the students are fighting to get for themselves. That, Mr. McConnell, what doesn't want. And then his last little dirty shot, he refers to the debtors as Ivy Leaguers. Here the idea is, in case you hadn't heard it, that we shouldn't give student forgiveness because, get this now, some of the students don't need to have their debts forgiven because they come from wealthy parents. They go to the elite schools. They're rich people. I love that. And I want to remind Mr. McConnell that in December of 2017, a few years ago, when Mr. Trump and the Republicans gave the corporations and the richest Americans one of the biggest tax cut gifts they ever got, nobody, including Mr. McConnell, said, gee, we shouldn't give a tax cut to companies that don't need it. Many of the companies who got the biggest tax cut have been making wild profits for five or 10 or 15 years before the tax cut. They clearly didn't need it. But nobody brought up the question of need, and everybody got the tax cut. But when it comes to helping students, no, 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 no. Now we are going to discuss need. Mr. McConnell is a faker, doing the service of the people he should be challenging. My next update has to do with an absolutely remarkable phenomena sweeping this country. It started long ago, but it really picked up steam in the aftermath of the Great Recession of 2008. Here's what it is. Masses of people losing their jobs, losing their income, unable to make their mortgage debt payments, so they have to sell their house. That part isn't all that new. What's new is who buys it, not another family. That's the old story. Now it's corporations who are set up to mass purchase the houses of those who have to leave because they've been rendered bankrupt. And they don't want to sell the house. They want to convert it from a homeowner to a home renter. It's the conversion of more and more American families into renters. And the money that is made by these large corporations is enormous because they buy the houses from people desperate to sell them and therefore at a low price. And then when the economy came back in 2011 and 12, at least part of the way, the rising value of the home was the benefit of the corporation, not the family that had been forced to leave. Horrible, ugly story about today's American capitalism. 
but it has side effects that are even worse. Let me give you an idea, because much of the loss of homes in the Great Recession were homes owned by African Americans, so that today, 75% of whites are homeowners, only 41% of African Americans are homeowners. The situation has gone the furthest in this whole country in the big city of New Jersey known as Newark, where half, half of the homes are now owned by companies that rent them out. And here's a side effect that a visitor to this show on occasion, Bob Henley, made me aware of. He's a specialist in New Jersey where he lives and works. And he pointed out that there's been a catastrophic drop in the registration of African-Americans and other poor folk in Newark. Why? Because if you convert a home from homeowner who lives there, who's invested in the community, who learns about the community because he or she owns the home, they're likely to register to vote. They care. They pay attention. A renter who doesn't know how long he or she will be there has a completely different attitude, doesn't register to vote, doesn't participate locally. And you know who benefits from that? The Republicans, because the inner city people who don't register and vote are overwhelmingly Democrat. People didn't think any of this through, and that's how the transformation of this country is continuing just a few inches below the radar, but with devastating social effects. The last update I have time for is in some ways the most important. You know, as politics has moved to the right, as we see Democrats who look more and more like what Republicans used to look like, and Republicans look more and more what we, like what we used to call fascists, the question has always been now for, for decades, what is the left doing? if the middle and the old left moves to the right and the right moves into the cuckoo land, the left seems to be paralyzed. It seems to be fragmented into many different parts. Well, the old argument is if the politics move to the left, eventually the pendulum will swing the other way. And over the last few weeks, the pendulum has begun to swing. And not surprisingly, it started in France, where these kinds of left-wing swings have happened before. In the first round of the presidential election in France in April, the two people who got the most votes, Macron, the sitting president, and the right-wing extremist Le Pen, were the first two vote-getters, so they had a runoff at the end of the month, and Macron defeated Le Pen. Little known fact, in the first round, Mr. Macron, the president, got 28% of the vote. The four left-wing parties, had they come together and backed one candidate, would have gotten, and they did get this together, 30%. In other words, they would have won. But they didn't. They fought each other. Over the last few weeks, they have come together. And now they are going to back one candidate in each district of France in the legislative elections coming in June. Left-wing unity is rearing its head. And for the politics of the West, watch out. We've come to the end of the first part of today's show. And I'd 
as we continue to celebrate the 10th anniversary of creating and producing content, we urge you to take a look at all that we do at democracy.info, democracyatwork.info. For example, Capitalism Hits Home. It's a podcast that explores the intersection of psychology and economics, hosted by Dr. Harriet Fraud. Her show and others can also be found at our website. And of course, we couldn't do all this without your support and encouragement, which is enormously appreciated and needed. Please stay with us. We'll be right back with Professor Marcello Musto. Welcome back, friends, to the second half of today's economic update. Before introducing our guest and our friend, because he's been a friend of mine for years, I want to raise the question that motivated the arrangement of this conversation. The middle of political life in Western Europe, in the United States, and in other countries has been on the decline and retreat for many years now. The war in Ukraine is an attempt by the middle of our political spectrums to hold on, to hold on to its shift to the right of the last several decades, but above all, to hold on to its position of power increasingly threatened from the left and the right. And so the Ukraine war is an attempt by the middle to survive and to force the left and the right to line up behind the middle. This situation is not new. This has happened before. And what I wanted particularly for the left audience of this program was to bring someone who could talk to us and go with us through some of the key historical moments when wars have presented themselves to see how the left reacted to those wars as a way to guide and to inform how the left deals with Ukraine now. No one would be better, I thought, to do this than my friend, Professor Marcello Musto. He's a professor of sociology and sociological theory at York University in Toronto, Canada. He is known globally for his many published books, articles, and edited volumes on Karl Marx and on Marxism. He is the founding director of the Laboratory for Alternative Theories at York University, an editor of the book series Marx, Engels, and Marxisms for Paul Grave Macmillan, and Critiques and Alternatives to Capitalism for Routledge, two major British publishing house. So first of all, and above all else, thank you, Marcello, for joining us. Thank you very much for the invitation, Rick. All right, let's jump right in. Give us, based on all the researches you've done over the years, give us a sense historically how the left has come to terms with or divided over the question of war. 
It's very interesting to go back to the history of the left because many times we try that we are facing a dramatic times and this is true, but it is not the first time that we have to face some of the questions they are debating these days. So the issue of war in the debate of the left is as old as the first international in the 1860s, in the 1870s, when actually war was considered by the labor movement as an, an, an inevitable element of capitalism. So I will say that there was a compelling contribution of socialism that gave the responsibility of war to the development of capitalism, the connection between capitalism and the spread of war. So no longer this idea that war is connected to the ambition of a monarch, but to the dominant socio-economic system. And this is something that we have seen in many authors of the left, including in Friedrich Engels. Very few people know that Friedrich Engels, who wrote the Communist Manifesto with Karl Marx, actually wrote at the very end of his life, a very relevant um, series of articles on war. The title was Can Europe Disarm? And Engels is actually pointing out the fact that it is essentially that there is a process of disarmament. Otherwise, this would be the only guarantee for peace, according to Engels. Otherwise, it would be a destruction that the world had never seen. And it's talking about, of course, the unprecedented level of you know, production of war, ammunitions, etc. But the debate later became even more complicated because it is no longer a debate about theory, but it is a debate, and I'm talking about the second international, the beginning of the 20th century, about concrete political issues, in particular, the aggressive agenda of Germany, of Weltpolitik. And this was the beginning of other issues and other problems, not only in socialism and Marxism, but also in other political families like anarchism or the feminist movement. Okay. Let me provoke you a little bit. In World War I, there were two major countries, not the only ones, Russia and the United States, participated in World War I. But the major leaders, political left-wing leaders in those two countries, included on the Russian side, Lenin, on the American side, Eugene Victor Debs, a major historic leader of the Socialist Party. And both of those men, one in Russia, one in the United States, declared that in their view, they would support neither side in World War I, and they encouraged young men and women not to serve in the military because these were wars in which working-class people shot at and killed each other for the greater glory of the capitalists who had made the decisions that led into the war. These days, for example, young socialists elected to the U.S. Congress recently have been supporting the war in Ukraine, supporting the middle in that effort, as if there were some kind of necessity. Could you tell us a little bit about how the, the left split around World War I and what the thinking there was? Unfortunately, the positions of the leaders that you mentioned in Soviet Union and in the United States were minoritarian at the time. They were following the idea coming from the first international that every war is a civil war. That's a wonderful principle. And therefore, labor movements should struggle for the final abolition of all wars. 
but concretely with the second international, there was no possibility, there was no capability of uniting workers. And the majority of socialists and social democratic parties voted in favor of war credit, right? So this was a dramatic decision for the left. And uh, there were people in the anarchist movement, including in the anarchist movement, like for example, Kropotkin, he was the most well-known leader at the time. He was worried about the aggressive politics of Germany, right? So Kropotkin himself is saying, we should support an alliance against Germany. And even among feminists, there is this idea that um, war is a positive thing because women will be able to work and substitute conscripted men at the time. But actually, very slowly at the beginning and then strongly later, there is a majority of the left that is understanding that war is the, is the biggest horrible things in the world. And there is actually also opposition to the old idea coming from French Revolution that war is an opportunity to bring revolution. On the contrary, war is now clearly identified with destruction, with death, with hunger, and very slowly at the beginning and then strongly later, in particular thanks to leaders like Rosa Luxemburg, her slogan, war to war, her idea that the main goals of fighting imperialism war is the most important things the labor movement should be do. This was the beginning of a new era and the beginning of a pacifist era slogan and program for the labor movement. Yes, you know, in, in European history, which I know through my own family, after World War I, one of the most powerful ways of recruiting young people, particularly to the socialist movement, the communist movement, and so on, was this association of socialism and communism and so on, anarchism, with anti-war. In other words, in looking back at World War I, the position of refusing to participate looked better and better relative to the position of those who had supported it because World War I was such a devastating war. All right. Did it matter to the left in these debates who, quote unquote, started the war? Was this an issue that made any difference? That's interesting because actually this debate that we are having today, who started the war, the just war, war of defense, is something that it has been debated, again, not only in theory, but concretely in very dramatic historical circumstances by the left. I will bring the example of the most important French socialist leader at the time, Jean Jaurès. In 1911, he wrote an important book in which he was in favor of this defensive war. And the case was the defense from somebody who had started the war. So it is very similar to the case that we are debating today with Russia and Ukraine. But actually, once again, Rosa Luxemburg was very brilliant in her critical analysis of this position, because Rosa Luxemburg wrote that it is not easy to say who really started the war and if there are stratagems adopted by a country 
to make another country start the war. So you cannot measure with the artistic of justice or through a scheme of defense and aggression about these things of war. And there is another woman, wonderful that this is coming from two women and wonderful, as I mentioned before, that the struggle against militarism was essential for the struggle against patriarchy. The other person is Simone Weil. Reflection on War in 1933, a very small but brilliant contribution article that she wrote. She's going against this ideology of violence. And she wrote that no matter what name it may take, fascism, liberalism, dictatorship of the proletariat, the principal enemy is the administrative policy and military apparatus. And war is, of course, the biggest moment in which this apparatus is growing and taking more power on self-emancipation of workers and citizens. Okay, in the time we have left, let me ask you, given what you have told us and given this history, how do you understand what the left is doing in relationship to the Ukraine war and what is your own view as to what the left's position ought to be? Well, unfortunately, this theoretical debate is not there. We are very weak theoretically in some countries. I, I was born in Italy, right? And this is an example, because in my country, there was the biggest communist party in Western Europe, and now the weak is very left. In some other countries, this is not the case, like with La France Insoumise and Mélenchon in France. I would say that there are mainly three positions. The first one is a position with uh, which I don't agree, that is a position of not condemning very clearly Russia. There is this idea United States have done the same or they will have responded in the same way if they were at risk of its security. But I, in my opinion, this kind of position will make difficult to denunciate later possible future act of aggression committed by anybody. And Lenin himself is in favor of self-determination and why you should suggest that anything different and give this to the nationalist government of Putin. But there is a second position that is also very dangerous, and it's the position of the left, including in the radical left, that is becoming directly or indirectly co-belligerents. We have seen this many times in the past years. In Italy, supporting the war of Kosovo, or today with Podemos in Spain, or the left alliance in Finland, they are all clapping their hands to this militarist discourse that Zielinski is doing in uh, many European parliament. And I believe that this is dangerous because history has shown that when progressive forces don't, do not oppose war, they lose an essential part of their reason of existence and end up shallowing the ideology of the opposite camp. There is a third position, and I think that this third position is the very good one, the most effective to end war and to have the smallest number of victims, which is the position of non-alignments. Non-alignments does not mean neutrality, does not mean not recognizing the main responsibility of Russia, ignoring the Russian international right. But the point here is to avoid escalation. And I believe that the left cannot have this idea, the famous motto of Clausewitz, the continuation, war is a continuation of the politics by other means. The left should believe that war is the failure of politics and the left should have very clear that on its banners, the war anti-militarism and not to war are essential, dramatically essential. 
Marcello, as usual, I wish we had more time, but I do very much appreciate your bringing to the fore and thereby informing the debate that we need to continue in this country and everywhere else about the war in Ukraine, but also the whole question of war and what the left with its political power can and should do. Thank you very much again for being with us. And to my audience, I hope you take some insight and some thought-provoking qualities from today's interview. And as always, I look forward to speaking with you again next week.